Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending Friday the 20th of May. We are on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 to 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on the podcast this week, you'll hear Elizabeth McCarthy come in for a book review and talk about Sean Pryor's new book, Childless, a story of freedom and longing. And also we talked about what do you do when you wake up to a creepy crawly in your bed. Speaking of creepy crawlies, kids are getting their smartphones a lot earlier these days. Ten is the average age, which is insane. Uh, How annoying is it when you order takeaway food and they miss an item? That Mm. happened to me. And Antoinette Latouffe was on the show to talk about her new book, How to Lose Friends and Influence White People. We look into the nightmare of hosing down other people's nightmares ahead of the election. Dr Jen Quinn certainly drops on us some new weird science of lying. But we start the week with a look at the premature chucking away of stuff. Triple R. So recently I've thrown a few things away that I hadn't used in a very long time. So I thought it was fine. Not to throw away, actually um, donated. So either donated to clothes places or um, anyway. So recently I, I spoke about on over the weekend I was hosting a, a Kitabas cultural day and everyone that was there had traditional uh, Kitabas clothing on and oh, you know people that were on the committee. I'm on the committee and I didn't have anything traditional. Now I have these, I had these traditional Kitabas women's top which is called a Sibuta for years. Years I had these mm-hmm. tops, never wore them, absolutely never How long are we talking Oh, some of them I had had for like six to ten years. Wow. Yeah. But I kept because it was a traditional top, but I just never wore them. And because we haven't had a kid of us independent celebration in years, I haven't worn them as well. So I, I donated these and I got rid of them. And then yesterday at this function that I was hosting, I looked like an imitang, <laughs> which is... A foreigner, okay, from <laughs> us because I was wearing Western clothes. Um, and I, and I was, they're like, you don't own a Sibuta? I was like, I had half a dozen of them, but I just never wore them and I was and I was I should have just kept one. I know it was stupid, very stupid. But didn't I, you, you've gone to lots of these cultural events in the past and you just, ne- you just never had to wear them, wear the clothes? No, sometimes, uh, sometimes I have and I've had uh, traditional, in, in any type of island clothing. Like I do own Lava Lovers, uh, which is like a sarong. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so I, I, I do own them, but the top is probably just the best to wear. I, and I just mm. didn't have it. Anyway, me, I'm an idiot. I should have just kept one at least. Yeah. Okay. I, I had a heap of them. I hadn't worn them. Yeah. Another thing that um, we, that Abby and I had were um, a, uh, sorry, Chinese soup spoons that you have with Luxa mm-hmm. or with um, pho, anything. Uh, we ordered takeout once and we got given a couple of these because we don't actually have them. Like, yeah. I don't have any, um, what's the word? Ceramic. Ceramic ones, yes. Michael Harden's favourite spoon. Oh, yes, When he's talking is. about soup, he's a big fan of them. Exactly. And <laughs> I don't own any of them, which is stupid because I do love Asian soups. Um, and I, we, we had a couple of plastic ones from takeaway and we kept them in our drawer and they were just getting in the way they didn't they were going just in the teaspoon place Mm -hmm. Uh, and every time you get a teaspoon it was getting knocked out of the way and we just never used them we hadn't had anything that we needed them for and now he's like are are we going to keep these are we going to get rid of them I go get rid of them they've been there for months get rid of them and of course I reckon that week we had laksa and pho and we had none it was just Mm. like oh my god now we have to use this terrible silver spoon western spoon this western bloody imitang spoon and it just doesn't work with this soup yeah it sucks you think you're being so good don't you you do you think you're being responsible and mature i did the same with well 
chopsticks, like, oh. but, but like takeaway chopsticks. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh. But then, you know, something happens and you need chopsticks. Need yes. chopsticks to get uh, toast. That's, I use chopsticks to get toast that's stuck out <laughs> that's of the smart. toaster when I'm not using them to eat. Yeah, yeah, instead of jamming the knife down or turning it off. You're turning it off and shaking it around. Shaking Just put it. The chopsticks in there. Perfect. Getting in there. Anyway. <laughs> there was a glass fruit bowl that I had, and I, I, no, I was looking for it the other day. It's gone. must be gone. I threw it out because I was like, you don't purchase enough f- individual fruits mm. to oh. fill this fruit bowl. Mm. It will look empty. Anyway, I've just been going fruit mad. <laughs> of course. And I need this glass fruit bowl. I threw two pair, away two pairs of jeans recently. Oh. <gasps> Wow, that's... As an incentive to buy more. Oh, yeah. And oh, then, yeah. you know, and now it's, I'm walking around in f- shorts in freezing weekend <laughs> weather. Because I prematurely, as you yeah. say, threw away something I would need. And yeah. then, you know, I, but I, I do the opposite with things and, and I'm reluctant to throw it away in case I will need it. And as you know, before working here, one of uh, the many jobs that I had was working as a painter. And so I have kept my painting clothes mm. and my train my painting shoes. So they've got paint all over them. But I'm keeping them in case I get the call up to help paint a house Keep one them. day. Yeah. Fine. Twelve months. I haven't used them. They were they're in the uh, covered in the laundry. And Abby's like, for Christ's sake, are you are you using these or not? I said, well, I might get a call. And you know, as soon as I. Throw them away, of course. Yes. Yeah, Can you help paint yeah. this house? Yeah. Size is important with keeping stuff, right? Like, yeah, I'll, I'll just keep – it's not taking up any room. Mm. Um, we moved house last year and it was, like, good, always a good chance to clean up. Mm-hmm. And Will's very much like, get rid of this, get rid of that. Yes. Why are you still keeping this? And I'm not a hoarder, but I do have emotions. And so, <laughs> like, and, and I'm also, like, I hate waste. I'm like, oh, no, yeah. it's perfectly good. Mm. But did sell a few things. Yep. But one of the things he was insisting, he's like, get rid of that – was an old iPod shuffle. They're about the size of a postage oh, stamp. No, no, no. Yep, po- size of a postage stamp. But he's like, get rid of it. You never use it. And I was like, well, it's, it's so small. What is it in the way of, Will? Yes. What's happening? No, so- I sold it 25 bucks. No. Oh, yeah. And then last Come week. On. And last week. But this was one of those tiny, you know those tiny ones I that you could know. like clip on? Yes. Um, and I was, I remember I used oh. to take it to the gym in like 2010 because it was small and I'd just put it on shuffle and it would just be like a random assortment of songs. Anyway, it's gone. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Will. Yep. I know. <laughs> he doesn't understand the value of these old, and also I sold a keyboard, perfectly good Casio uh, electronic keyboard because again, it was like, well, you never play it. You used to sit under the bed, didn't bother anybody. Yeah. Sold it. Well, and then will. a couple of weeks ago, I played in this band oh. at the moment. <gasps> Had to borrow oh. a keyboard. Mm. Speaking of, oh, sorry, go Daniel. No, I was just thinking, similar to painting, I suppose, but pre before coronavirus. Remember the uh, bushfires and um, the masks. <gasps> so I've got all these masks, but they're not in ninety fives. They're like I don't know. You you might wear them painting or yeah, right. Yep, yep. And I, but they. They just take up space and I'm like, they're going to be more bush. Yeah, what am I getting at? Mm. And I'm, now you've convinced me to keep these goddamn masks. You're going to keep them. I feel keep like masks. me keeping the masks is staving off bush more bushfires. Oh, so oh, the Oh, lo- yes. Okay. Yeah, no, I see where you're going with that. Because yeah. so, you know yeah. the second you throw them out that you'll boom. need them again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah so keep them. Speaking of emotion, you're saying with <laughs> throwing things away because you're connected emotionally. My mother passed away a few years ago and she had this big pot that was worth – it's worth a significant amount of money, but like hundreds of dollars, but she didn't have the lid and the pot is just no good without the lid. Yeah. We haven't got a lid that sits on it, so we don't use it and it's huge. And our pot drawer is so, so stacked. And every time you open it to get something out, everything falls and you just have to restack it and Abby's just like, do you – so do you think – because I was like, I think we need to get rid of some stuff there. She's like, do you think we need a – 
get rid of um, that this big pot we haven't used <gasps> in a while. I was like, which pot? She's like, the um, uh, the one over here. I was like, oh, mum's pot. <laughs> My dead mother's <laughs> pot. What about the five muffin tins, huh? What about those? How dare you, How Kate? dare you disrespect my mother like that? Get rid of the muffin tins, thank you. <laughs> she won't be making any muffins oh, no. for you. <laughs> Melbourne's own Triple R. Elizabeth McCarthy joins us with the latest in literature. Morning, Elizabeth. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Bobby. Hello, Moni. <laughs> Hello. Hello. So today I thought I'd talk about um, a new memoir that's been floating around for a couple of months, maybe. Um, it's by the Melbourne writer Sean Pryor, and it's called Childless, A Story of Freedom and Longing. And I think it is exceptionally brave to write about this longing and feeling of um, incompleteness of childlessness because unfortunately we're still in a still in a culture where women who don't have children for whatever reason um, are often viewed as having something very wrong with them whether that's physically or mentally or emotionally um, you know that they're selfish or or their body is insufficiently um, you know womanly or they're too headstrong or career focused um, or you know their choices in men are just to trap those men um, into giving them a child. So so these stereotypes and prejudices and misogyny around women who don't have children has been going on for a long time. It's very much still alive and um, in some cultures to this day if you are a woman who are without a child you will be you know a social outcast um, in some places and you know dealt with violently and um, you know, with physical abuse. So so what Sean Pryor manages to do in this memoir is um, this very gentle but powerful memoir that she's written is address some of these um, big picture, um, some of this big picture misogyny about women who don't have children and explore how those ideas play across her own adult life. One in which she craves and longs for and goes to great lengths to uh, conceive a child. So... So digging into the actual story of this memoir, because that's what it is, um, having a child for her has been a lifelong um, longing. It, it's never been a case of if, it's always been in her mind a case of when she would have a child. It was sort of, you know, yes, of course, you know, growing up she was one of these people who never gave it a second thought that she would have a child. Um, so when she's a young woman, she and her partner um, try for children and they cannot get or stay pregnant. And it breaks the relationship after many um, years together. Um, she, they have several miscarriages and, um, you know, it, it just devastates both of them. And that's a long-term relationship that breaks up because of this um, incapacity in to, to have a child. So she then starts another relationship with a man who's up front from the start and he says to her, uh, I don't want any more children I've got three already from my two previous marriages and, um, you know, which is fair enough. It's very good to be upfront about these things, particularly if you um, are very aware early on that someone you're going out with is someone who actually wants a child. So he's upfront. And so, um, so they're in a very loving relationship and she embarks on IVF to have a child on her own. And something that is um, <clears throat> a little bit nebulous in this relationship is that that they don't really discuss how, you know, if she successfully has this child on her own, but still in the relationship, what his he will 
how you know the extent of what his parenting mm. looks like that's not actually discussed however she is um you know very um dedicated to having um IVF at one point in the relationship he says to her I've changed my mind I want to have a child with you so they try to have a child um then he uh flip-flops again and says um I've changed my mind again I don't want to have a child with you um which is just an extraordinary flip-flop to do to someone who you're in a relationship mm. with and they and you know from the get-go they really want to have a child. So anyway, they stay in this relationship together. She goes back to IVF with the hope that, you know, she'll have a child via IVF to be a single parent while in this relationship. And then after 10 years together, he says to her, um, I want to be with other women. So she's single in her late 40s and completely devastated. So across some... Um, Across the 10 years of being with that man, she's developed strong relationships with his children. He has a big family, um, an extended family, and, you know, she's very much interwoven in their lives. It's a big sort of loving, generous, open family. And so she has uh, very close relationships with his children and with his one grandchild. So when the relationship breaks up, she grieves the loss of that closeness with them. So there's there's still contact, but not a lot and it's not the same kind of contact. So, you know, when you're a person who not only loves the company of kids and want your own kids, that breakup of being a step parent hits her particularly hard. So so then becomes um, a period of her having to give up this lifelong idea of being a mother because she's getting older and her body hasn't taken to IVF and she um, has to start reorienting reorientating herself in her own life one without ever having a child and it's an incredibly painful time and she um she works through that and she's very much still working through it I think but this is um as I said a really powerful memoir and you know literature about motherhood and women's health has come a long way but that doesn't mean that the pain of wanting to be a mother or indeed actually being a mother <laughs> is is done with. Mm. God, life's hard, isn't it? It is really hard. And I think that this book, like obviously we all know people who um, have have really wanted to have uh, children and haven't been successful. I've got a number of friends who, um, you know, have been through the IVF process, nothing happened, whether that they did that as a single person or um, in a relationship, um, who, uh, you know, have never n- never quite recovered from that. Mm. Um, you know, earlier this year I read this um, very powerful piece of journalism about women and reprodu- reproduction. It's a piece of journalism um, and I can't remember. It's either by um, Anne Helen Peterson or Helen Lewis. I can't remember which one of them wrote it and I have to go back to my um, email archives. But this piece of journalism explored abortion, miscarriage and carrying a child to full term. And this piece pointed out that women in reproduction cannot be compared to anything else because there is nothing else like it. So... So when well-meaning people say to Sean Pryor and others, you know, fill your life up with other things, go, you know, go back to university or um, travel mm. or, you know, start jogging and all those sorts of things, those well-meaning people who say things like that to people, who, to women who can't have children and supposedly have a raft of resources to do all these, you know, fantastic other things with their lives, um, 
these things are not comparable to having a child. And that's what is really clear in this memoir is that there is this gap, this lack um, that she feels so emotionally and so deeply and, you know, is haunted by mm. and is actually moving on with her life um, in incredible ways. Mm. Um and then if, if you're having fertility issues or relationship issues, sometimes just moments in the day can sting, mm. but you don't, you just carry on. You don't. Mm. That's right. That's right. But this is, um, you know, she, this is someone who sees children on the streets and, uh, you know, on a street, a mother sort of bending over a pram or what have you and, and gets very emotionally impacted by that. Mm. Not all the time now. Um, you know, she's in her, I think, mid to late 50s now, but... Um, yeah, I think it's an incredibly powerful book and I think also it's it's a subject matter, you know, that's not written about much. No. And it's like miscarriages as well, which is not written about much. And the women I know who have had miscarriages, um, you know, are still often very impacted years later by their miscarriages, even if they've had other children. Yeah. Is this, um, I'm from reading an extract, it seems like it's beautifully written and yeah. she lays herself very bare. Um, and is it a difficult read or is there something beautiful about it? No, I mean, it wasn't for me. I read it really quickly, actually. I read it sort of in an afternoon and a morning. Um, no, I don't think it's um, difficult. She doesn't um, – there's no poor me mm. at all. There's no sort of like – you don't feel manipulated to feel sorry for Sean Pryor. She's actually very plain with the facts of her life. Mm. Um, it, it might be difficult for um, some people who have craved what she's craved mm. to read. However, those people also might find enormous comfort and um, empathy in this book. I, I would suggest it would be the latter, actually. Mm. Yeah. Is the, the book written retrospectively or do you feel like is it more of a journal – diary sort of it's not really a diary it's it's more like um a series of essays and fragments uh or not fragments really because the chapters are quite long and they're not fragmented but Mm -hmm. um you know they're they're, um vignettes no no not vignettes daniel um (laughs) no they're they're essays that could be plucked out and published on the conversation which one part has yeah standalone pieces as well look I really look forward to reading about the next chapter of her life because what she does towards the end of the book is she gets her stepfather makes her this basically this kind of she buys this old truck he is very handy with his uh with carpentry and and fits it out and she goes on these camping adventures by herself and um you know sort of trying to heal really and I was highlighting the hell out of um that part, sort of, you know, how you camp a van around the place. Uh, you know, she's kind of in a tiny house on wheels. Mm-hmm. Um, so I look forward to the next book, uh, the next memoir and um, and more stories of these, you know, her her adventures elsewhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't get more highly recommended than highlighting the hell out of something. <laughs> <laughs> I highlight the hell out of all the books I read. So we're talking Sean Pryor's Childless, A Story of Freedom and Longing, and it's out via text. Elizabeth McCarthy, thanks heaps. No worries. Triple R. I read an article this morning, uh, it came out yesterday in the UK about a man waking up to a wasp in his bed. It was a five centimetre wasp. Isn't that huge? M- massive. Right? Yeah, I'm just trying to remember that, what five centimetres is. Before I started talking, I put my finger up just to have a look. Um, I mean, he had time to post about it and take a photo of it though um, and post it on Reddit. But 
I think I, I'm not sure the last time that I woke up to a creepy crawling in my bed because I've been living in apartments. I, we just don't see them as much in, oh, yeah. in apartment buildings. Um, but I used to live in the country in Blackwood, which I've spoken about every single day. There were, there were just spiders all over the place. Yuck. We lived. <laughs> We lived on, uh, I think we had an acre and it was just in the bush mm-hmm. and yeah, just every day there were always spiders everywhere and like talking, I would wake up and, and there has been like a spider on my bed or in my bed. Terrifying, right? Mm-hmm. And this is just something I think mm-hmm. when it happens all the time, you're just so used to, you're just like, oh, I mean, it's, you don't like it. You brush it off and you, you brush it off sleep. And you get on with it, oh right? Gosh. We had, um, like I think about it now, if... If there was a spider in my bed now, I mean, I'd jump up, I'd get out the house. Really? So you didn't become desensitised growing n- up with it? No. I did for that time that I was growing up, but as soon as I get out of it, I get comfortable in another environment, then I, I change. <sighs> I, do, I do not adapt. Um, I, like I spoke about when I was in Samoa and I had a centipede underneath my... <sighs> well, it was, actually, it was under a mat. I was sleeping on the floor and there was a mat and then a mattress. And the, Anyway, I could hear it scratching underneath. It was the biggest, I'm, and I kid you not, because they're very long, uh, like 20 centimetres, and the legs were huge. Um, terrifying. But these are things that I got, I guess, kind of... I mean, I did scream at everyone in the house because there were quite a few people. It was a big share house. Um, someone thought I was getting murdered. Like it was, <laughs> and I screamed and then I ran and jumped on top of the table. Uh, and yeah. Are centipedes anyway. dangerous at all? Uh, they are. The small ones are though. This one was so big. Like normally the bigger ones are, are not as dangerous. They're, they're quite poisonous. So, oh, really? Yeah. So oh, Great. Another thing to be scared of. Yeah. Well, this was in Samoa. I'm not sure oh, okay. what they're like here. Um, but you know, when I was living in Blackwood, we had, uh, we had an outdoor toilet and, I mean, that's just terrifying at night, like in the middle of the night when you need to go to the bathroom. We would get in the habit, we wouldn't turn the light on because if you turn the light on in the outdoor toilet, you would see every single spider that there was. And then you couldn't go. Yeah. Yuck. My mother and I, and probably my brothers as well, did resort to just squatting in the bush rather than going into this box so you didn't spiders. have any, you just only had an outdoor toilet? We only had an outdoor toilet. Oh, that and is horrific. It was horrific. It absolutely was. I'm traumatised. Well, I'm okay now because I yeah. live in an apartment. So it's like ignorance isn't necessarily bliss. It's just less traumatising. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, mm. I think so. Um, but this was like an old school. There was no plumbing. This was like a bucket. A drop toilet. A drop toilet that we had to empty. It How go. many years did you have that? The whole time we were living there. Oh, no. Uh, in the end... No, sorry. So we were living there for about 10 or 11 years uh, and we had it for five years. Oh, my gosh. Then we had renovations and thank God we had a regular plumbing. toilet. We had plumbing, wow. yes. Amazing. But Jeez. that's how long we had it for. And, and like like I said, it's just something that you, you get used to, I think. So I remember I was, um, I was camping near Uluru in, mm. I don't know, 12 years ago or something. And so you just sleep, you don't sleep in a tent, you sleep in a, sleeping in a swag. swag. And um, waking up the next morning and the, one of the guys I was camping, camping next to, this British um, tourist, said to me, I woke up in the middle of the night to go to the toilet and I looked over at your swag and there was the biggest spider, like hand size. Oh my God. On you. <gasps> and I just was like, what do I do? I don't want to wake her. So he just like sat there staring at it. <laughs> And was just like, well, I, like, and just left it. And I think it either crawled off. Either way, I never knew. And I'm really glad because if he woke me up in the middle of the night and oh. said, hey, love, there's a spider. Mm-hmm. No, he did the right <laughs> thing. But can you imagine? So, yeah, who knows? And you know there's that stat about it, the, a person eats eating. X amount of spider that is in their sleep. What if you're eating a bird-eating spider? <laughs> 
I think it's eating you. Yeah, it's we quietly. mentioned that on air with Jace Moore. <laughs> or, and he the spider thought, eating stuff. He, he thought that, or maybe he introduced it, and he, I think he thought that people were intentionally eating the spider. <laughs> he did because you mentioned something about it in your sleep, and he's like, "Oh, is it in your sleep? Is it?" <laughs> <laughs> like sleepwalking eating spiders. It's like, no, they crawl into your mouth, Jace. Oh, oh I mean, I've had, I've woken up with a cockroach on my pillow. Oh, yeah. And that's, there's, it's kind of like, a, instead of being alarmed, there's kind of like a, a sad peace that descends. It's like, I'm getting out of here. Like, this is it. Yeah. Like, And then now a friend got me a framed, no, it wasn't framed, but he stuck a, um, a magazine cut out of a cockroach and put on my fridge. Oh, that's mean. <laughs> no, it was it was to remind because it was on a in a new joint, and so it was to remind you that those days are over. That's oh, actually that, yeah. that's cool. Onwards and upwards. Yes, mm. but of course you never know. Yeah, no. cockroaches is something that I think I have adapted to because they are in hot climates, humidity. Yeah. So I lived with them in Fiji and Samoa, and that's just something that I I think I got used to. Terrifying though when. They do fly at you. <gasps> Just the sound of yes, yeah. yeah it's like because most of the time they don't move or they just slowly walk and you you get rid of them. But when they, I won't say attack, but when they yeah, it could be attacking. I mean, they're probably, they're just trying to defend themselves. Who is this human being poking at me? So and they just come at you, terrifying. But that's one thing. If Abby sees like if I go to open the Weber and there's a cockroach egg, we haven't used it for a while. Abby's just like out. I'm mm. nowhere near it and, and I will deal with that. She'll deal with the spiders. I'll deal oh. with the cockroach. That's what my mum would call them. Oh, cockroaches are fine. I am nonplussed by cockroaches. You haven't had one fly at you then? I didn't. I wasn't <laughs> aware that they flew. Yeah, I, I, I'm just – I think also if you've ever lived in Sydney, it's Cockroach City. Is it? Yeah, because of the humidity and, you know. Oh. Um, so we used to get them in our sort of drafty – terrace house a lot right but i was just like yeah because they don't they don't bite they don't can't hurt you they're just a bit yucky just flick them away and you, or you squash them or something mm. or you leave them to live in peace somewhere mm. else <laughs> what do you think about those electric tennis racket bug destroyers oh yes too industrial for me right too much too I much know. it's too much power for a little i don't know it just, it just seems weird wielding a racket yeah yeah uh, I feel like if you were the tennis player in the house, that's <laughs> bug catching is then your responsibility. Oh, definitely. Mm. Yeah, that's, you know, it's a good transition <laughs> to be. You know, if, like there's this multi. It's a multi. Who would have thought it's a multi-pronged um, skill? Yeah, exactly. It'd be like you know Don Bradman with the stump and the water tank and the ball. With <laughs> <laughs> you know somewhere in a shit bug-infested joint, Australia's breeding the next Roger Federer. Just from just from using the zapping. <laughs> Yeah. We got a text from someone who's oh, a yes. hero, I have to say, because they're who's an abseiling window cleaner. Oh, my God. What a wow. scary job. Yes. Scary enough. And they said, in the city, uh, spiders spiders in the city are huge since lockdown. So I don't know if that means that they've multiplied because no one was out there and about walking the streets, squashing <gasps> them. And oh. he said, they said, I feel like a cruise ship for spiders when I go down the building covered in spiders all day. Oh my god, hanging, abseiling from a building with Covered spiders. Uh, okay. How yeah, about is, that? Is Mike Whitney there? It yes. sounds like who dares win. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and was doing public speaking at the same time. Uh, there's a listener in Maruchi Door. Oh, hi. Says, I've got to the point where I've started giving the cockroaches names. Oh, wow. <laughs> there's old Barry yeah, scuttling across my dinner plate. You can't tell them apart. <laughs> sure not. Yeah. Anyway, that's gross. At least, I mean, 
Yeah, what's worse, being on, on your person as you're outside a skyscraper cleaning windows or in your bed? Outside skyscraper. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, I'm jumping out of my bed. I'm not jumping off the building. That's it. You have to have such um, such nerves of steel. Yes. Just watch it. I know a, um, a horticulturalist who... What the hell are spiders doing up there? What are, what are they doing? Lockdown. How did they get there? What are they do- why are they 60 floors up? Lockdown what allowed are- them to do whatever they want. Yeah, right. So they, they've got time They're to just climb curious. up 60 flights. They're like yeah, that Brighton girl going to Everest. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just try it on. <laughs> what did the dad say to that girl? Are we we like have like a big uh, dreams in big, our family? Yeah, exactly. Um, so maybe the spiders set big goals for themselves. To reach the top of the building. Mm. That's repulsive. Yeah, Daniel's offended. I'm not. I don't like it. Yeah. Are, no, there, I agree. are there insects up there? Are they lazy? Is it like a seagull at the beach getting chips, uh, and mm-hmm. they're just waiting for the bugs to splash into the windows? I mean, how many of us spend time on the outside of a tall building? Like, so maybe they've all. Maybe they're often. I mean, this person would know that they said there's been an increase. Mm. But I've never seen spiders on the outside of a building. You've never, never. been like, yeah, you've never seen it crawling on the window. No. Yeah. Well, you live in an apartment building. I do, and I've never seen spiders, Spider-Man, nothing on the outside of my building. (laughs) (laughs) Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. From Bite Into It, Vanessa Holker is indeed here to talk tech. Good morning. Morning, all. How are we? Yeah, good, we're good. You're looking good. You're smiley this morning. It's good to see. Thank you. Yeah. So I thought um, I'm really interested when kids and teenagers start talking about how they're using the internet. And I'm fortunate enough to have some nieces and nephews in mm-hmm. the world who are, you know, in teenhood or rapidly approaching. And at first it made me a little nervous when, you know, I talked to their folks and talked to other people with kids about the best ways to approach the first mobile phone. Mm. And I thought, oh, gosh, I don't have the answers to that. Mm. I don't remember what that was like. You know, I was in uni before I had my first mobile phone. So I think that there's very little received wisdom many of us have about what are all the boundaries and what's the mm. right way to set someone up in this, um, this, this tool. And it's such a great experience. Like it's so exciting to get a piece of technology like that that's going to open all the doors of the world. So how do you how do you frame it? So let's talk about that. Have you have you gone through these sort of conversations with friends? Have you had to make these decisions yourselves? No, I mean, yeah, I don't have any nieces or nephews or teenage children, but I teach I teach them. Yes, um, and everyone's got one. So I often wonder how do you you can't you can't tell a year seven that they can't have a phone because then they're ostracised. So I, I imagine it's that. That's battle. Like, what's more important? You know. Yeah, yeah. But well, I, don't, I just feel like they're also so much more tech savvy than us <laughs> that they could get around any kind of nanny net nanny you put on their phone. Oh, that's a really astute comment. I think. What about you, Daniel? <laughs> oh, I, I don't have to deal with it presently, but I think about it a lot, and I don't. I'm, I don't know how people navigate this space. Yeah. it sounds really fraught. Mm. Mm. I've got lots of nieces and nephews, and I often get. FaceTime phone calls from them from Love my that. brothers and sisters' phones. <laughs> oh, okay. So oh, they don't yeah. have their own. Yeah. And, yeah, I know that they've got access to some kids' messenger and stuff that they have spoken to us from and you have to get approval. And, yeah, but myself, I don't have any kids. So I, yeah, I'm... A little bit scared to navigate that kind of stuff. Well, I mean, I think kids see us on our devices all the time. Um, Almost 80% of the population in Australia have mobile phones, which is the second highest smartphone penetration in the world. We're just behind the US by a couple of percent. And if we 
Break that down further, 33% of Aussies aged between 6 and 13 own a smartphone. So it's definitely the point, you know, you can see all the valid reasons why kids get smartphones or other devices a little bit earlier on. So that earlier on they might get a little watch device that can maybe take phone calls but no internet access and that's a really good entry-level way if you just need to be able to contact a kid. Mm. Particularly when, you know, we've got all different shapes of families and people are trying to, you know, coordinate access and that sort of thing. So that kind of makes sense. But on average, Aussies are getting their first phone at the age of 10. So how do you start to to shape that? Well, um, we can look at the eSafety Commissioner site for some basic advice, some broad level advice. And they start framing up lots of good tips like, how do you check if your kid's ready for a phone? You know, do they have a good sense of responsibility? Are they able to stick to rules? You know, do they show understanding of actions and consequences? You know, so that some of the reasons for these rules mm. really make sense and make it a bit easier for them to, to want to sort of comply. Um, and do they come to, you know, a trusted adult? Do they come to you when they're distressed or encounter problems? Those are sort of some of the basics. If you, if you haven't got to that level yet, you know, probably too early... One of the tricky things is how do you model responsible phone usage mm-hmm. yourself? So I think some of, some of the key recommendations all across the internet are, right, what boundaries are we going to set up from scratch? When do we agree it's okay to use phones? When do we switch them off? How do we, you know, constrain the screen time? You know, take, take it away from dinner tables, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, how do, we, how do we value in-person conversations with the family? Um, maybe there's homework times that we switch it off. Uh, being careful about am I always glued to my phone? Mm. Am I being respectful in my relationships with everyone else? It's a nice little check-in, you think, for adults too, oh. <laughs> to do it for the kids but obviously for themselves as well. Yeah, being around my niece and nephew and just being, oh, I don't want to be the auntie who's glued to my phone unless mm. I'm taking photos. Like yes, there's of lots them. of photos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely it. But, you know, maybe you want to agree no phones after a certain time or no phones in the bedroom, you know, at certain ages. What is it going to be? Um, but ultimately, you know, you're starting to, to walk this line. These are people growing up. They're going to have to navigate these spaces themselves. So beyond those really early stages, how are you starting to empower them with the skills to make their own safe choices online? This is where it starts getting even more interesting, I think. How do we talk about self-awareness? Do we maybe install an app that reports back once a day on how much they're using their phone? Mm. That can be an incredible game changer. You know, just just knowing that you're using it this much, you're like, ah, I could have spent maybe an hour of that time playing soccer. Mm. You know, maybe I'll rethink this myself. Um, And setting up good habits is great if you can do it, you know, particularly in collaboration. Mm. What do we think a reasonable use of this would be? You know, how do we want to use this? How does it make you feel when you're using the phone this way when you're getting certain messages how can we open up dialogue you know has anything made you uncomfortable online have you seen something weird there's lots of resources to help you navigate the tricky conversations about exposure to saucy content which we really want to watch and uh, keeping that very pc friendly for this hour of the morning yeah what's what's one of those resources um oh look i think people need to find their own because they've got different scales of uh, sex positivity for example and that's really got to fit you know the way you feel and how you want to raise your child which I would never presume to to tell somebody Um, 
But even the basics like, you know, not broadcasting your location, not sharing your phone number, not responding to messages that you don't know the number of, how to recognise spam. These are skills that people are going to need for the rest of their lives and they've got to start building it then. You know, so... so. I mean, if you've got an eight-year-old addicted to their iPad, mm-hmm. on what... Pl- I mean, what's stopping them from being 88 and spending 80 years as a brain in a vat? Yeah, like how do you curb that? Yeah. Like if they're already addicted. At that point, who's going to – who outside of a parent is going to – or a guardian is going to – well, I mean, there's, you know, personal responsibility at a certain point. You might look at cost-benefit analysis, you know, what is this costing me? Well, that's and right. with true addictions, that's what you look at. You Like, is this having effects materially on other parts of your life that should be enriching you? Yeah, are you missing out on hanging out with your friends or whatever? That's because, right. Or you, and what you see a lot now in, in schools is um, the lack of kids aren't getting enough sleep because they're in, in their bedrooms at night on their phones or iPads or whatever um, up late. Exactly. And so then that's another thing you have to tackle and it's that And we that haven't balance. even discussed the risk of cyberbullying and all those sorts oh, that's, of things. Yeah, which, exactly, yeah, which huge, is another yeah. minefield. But I think some things, some practical things that parents can do are, uh, A, sometimes realise, all right, not only have I maybe not kept up with the technology – but also the kids will use it inherently in a different way. They've got their own cultures and what have you. So, so be talking, asking, you know, what sort of what sort of things do your friends post? You know, what, what do you like about it? Um, can we talk about some archetypes online? You know, when I was a kid, there were lurkers and, they were, you know, what do you see? And mm. are they the fashion kids? And, you know, are there people posting creative things? Do you like that? You know, are we doing TikTok dances together? Mm. You know, are you using Snapchat? You know, how are you messaging people? Does that... You know, do you enjoy keeping in touch with your friends here? It's like if you're across it, that helps. If you can talk about certain apps and not just see the phone or the device as the enemy. That's, that's even, ba- even if you can relate to real life yeah. and just go, you know, you, you like hanging out with a lot of sporty kids. You know, do you have a sporty kid group online? Is that, you know, do you follow sports people in some mm. of your platforms? Just trying to really make sure that that dialogue is open and then trying to, to help them break it down and break down the mm. usage and the motivation of that. You know, how does that make you feel? Is it inspiring to follow sporting people or do you feel a bit of pressure? If you feel a bit of pressure, how do we maybe change that mix for you? You know, what would make you feel, you know, more empowered mm. or what would make you feel better about using things online? Yeah, so just in- interrogate how the kids feel and what they think about what they're consuming. I think that's right. And and it can be a real uh, temptation to have the moral panic aspect of the technology in mm. kids' lives and be, oh, I'm so worried about addiction, I'm worried about anxiety. Sure, we can worry about those things, but those aren't in a vacuum. We worry about those things in kids' lives anyway. Mm. Balance, you know, well-roundedness, a chance to explore a whole lot of different things. This is just another area to explore and learn skills. But how do we just keep our radar on... Um, there's a lot of controversy around the idea of parents using snooping sort of apps. Mm. I'm personally really against them because I think they set up that dynamic where it's okay to be surveilled if it's by someone who loves you. And I'm just like, "Mm, Mm. I don't know that I love that message. I'd much rather have the open dialogue all the way through and just like, you know what, you're going to see some dodgy things out there. And when you do, I want you to feel confident that you can turn that off anytime. You can talk to me anytime. Mm. If not me, if you don't feel comfortable with me, talk to a teacher, talk to a friend, you know, figure it out. But 
just giving kids lots of options and feeling safe that it's not their fault if something weird happens mm. and that weird things happen in the world. Sometimes they happen walking down the street. Sometimes they happen in your phone and just giving them some confidence to really you know, make decisions about that. And also not to treat using the internet as as <laughs> taboo in any way yeah. because they have to use it for school. They use it to socialise. Without that kind of thing in the pandemic, a lot of kids would have felt very isolated. So there are benefits to it. So if you just say technology is is dangerous and I have to watch you on it, then they're going to want to keep things from they're, you, I would imagine. Absolutely, yeah. 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 But if I end up in the background of a TikTok video dancing, I've gone too far. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Background, <laughs> foreground. Don't, <laughs> don't kid yourself. He's doing the sprinkler. Uh, Vanessa Holger, fascinating and thank you. Pleasure. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Ordered some takeout the other night. Woo. First time for the week. It, was, it is exciting. <laughs> when you cook all week and it's like, yeah, you know what, I'm going to spoil myself. Mm. Um, had burgers. Haven't had burgers in a while mm-hmm. and it was so good. Fancy and you know what? burgers? Uh, yeah, semi-fancy. Not drive-through burgers. No, not mm-hmm. drive-through. No, no, no. Um, and, and, yeah, didn't disappoint. Really good. Uh, now... We ordered, uh, Abby and I, between us, just one drink just to share. I I like to have a little bit of soft drink when I'm eating a burger burger and fries. And it's not the first time, but when we got our order, the drink was missing. I think if there's ever anything missing from an order, it's a drink. Oh, interesting. Like there'll be the bag that you can pick up and then just take, but it's always just the drink that's either forgotten to put next to it or or whatnot. Um, But it's not the first time, which was a little bit disappointing. I have received um, an extra burger once, and I was like, ooh, (gasps) I was so excited. Didn't need the burger, but had a bit of it. I'm just like, oh, well, I got her. Otherwise, it's a waste. Right? Mm. Until I checked the receipt and apparently I paid for the burger. Oh, Oh, right. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. Like, damn it. It's not an easy to... um you can't really reheat. Like I'm all about, you know, save leftovers. Yes, yep. Burgers are tricky. They are. Oh. I think it's the bun that kind of gets a little lettuce bit. Lettuce or Oh, the lettuce, mm, of course. You can't do that. Yeah. You know one thing, though, that um, you don't, they never miss and you always get multiple of, napkins. Oh, good. So many napkins. Do you eat with a napkin? Well, I, I, I don't normally eat with a napkin unless I've got a burger. When I've got a burger, every bite... I have to wipe. Oh, no, I always have a napkin. You do, right? Yeah, yeah always. Abby doesn't have much. She, like, use at the end. She's like, I'll use it at the end. Meanwhile, she's got food all over her face. <laughs> an animal. Animal. Disgusting. But I have to, and I don't know if the burgers are really big or I've got a small mouth, but I find every bite, there's something to wipe off. How can you not eat with a mm. napkin? Yeah, I yeah. Well, you agree? They're, they're gross. Oh, yeah, I eat most meals. I mean, except for like breakfast, but dinner, I'll always have a napkin. Yeah. If, I remember if you go to friends' house or whatever, and you sit at the table and they don't, then I'm like, oh, am I gonna have to wipe my, 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 my clothes? Or? I didn't know. Serviette? Do we say napkin oh, now? Serviette. Oh, so, yeah. Well, I mean, is paper napkins yeah, serviette? serviette? I'm fine with it. I just clearly there was a yeah. <laughs> there was just a period though where I would get wrapped over the knuckles for being Me too, like Americanized. Yeah, yeah. We, oh, yeah. We we were gonna oh, say napkin. It gotcha. was serviette. Yeah. I was like, isn't okay. serviette French? Like. Yeah, but it's cooler to be French than American. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't realise I was even saying it. Yeah, right. I think, yeah. If uh, I do, if I'd put money on it, I'd say a napkin, and I'm not going to die on this hill. But if a, a napkin, uh, thick, thick, absorbent serviette, almost transparent, like a tissue, like oh, a yeah. tissue, yeah, like Someone... a rubbed tissue, or yeah, ribbed. <laughs> well. <laughs> 
someone once I, I once pulled someone up on saying, well, just said, oh, why did you say napkin? Like that's American. I was a fun teenager to be around. Anyway, Sounds, yeah. this was a this was someone I worked with at Gloria Jeans. I don't know why that that detail is so irrelevant. Anyway, um, <laughs> but he said he told me that no napkin isn't American. That's where that's where we get nappy from. Like it's kids nappy. So okay. it's actually you're wrong. Anyway, I oh the tables turned at yeah, mine and, and Gloria like, oh, Jeans. Oh. <laughs> This is where I had all my life lessons. <laughs> if you want to be fancy, why don't you go get a job at Muffin Break? <laughs> don't even start me on the coffee club. <laughs> yeah, look, especially in lockdown, uh, when food came and they, they got the order wrong, that was... It would Heartbreaking. Be, it was like literally, you know, like you had nothing to look forward to. I know. Yes. And then, But now, you know, when you give an order and then they repeat it back to you, Mm. And it's like, well, when I said it, I forgot it. Like it dropped out of my brain and fell on the floor. Yeah, it's yours now. Yeah, it's yours now. This We did the handoff. It's been like exactly like doing a relay in the Olympics yeah. <laughs> where you give them the Take baton it. and they're like checking with you, throwing it back. Do you want to inspect the baton, make sure it's the right baton? I gave you the baton. <laughs> Um, and then now when you go, yeah, 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 and you, like, wave through the... Yeah, two burgers each. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Then it's on you. Yeah. They say, well, I repeated it. I remember when we, um, when I was in, so when we were adolescents, my parents went away for a couple of weeks and we had a, like, a ba- family friend come and babysit us um, and stay with us. And one night he got us Maccas. We went through drive through to get it and they left something out of the order. And we got home and opened it up. It's like, oh my god, then you know the nuggets aren't here. Or whatever. Oh, was that, were they your nuggets? Yeah, because I yeah, they would have been mine. Because the youngest child always missing out. Anyway, <laughs> but we still tell this story. I actually saw him, this family friend, like a couple of weeks ago, and we still talk about this heroic moment where he phoned up the you know fast food place and said, "This is unacceptable. You're missing, and not you know you're missing one of our orders." And so he's like, "I'll come through now, and you're going to give it to me." And we and he drove us back there and and made up for it and got them got our missing nuggets straight away. And you got it. You didn't just complain about it and talk about it. No, he's like, That's "We what I do. want what we want." Yeah, exactly. He was like, "I'm going to. I want action." How is this heroic? Because we were defenseless <laughs> little kids. <laughs> yeah. And normally, I reckon if you get home, you got three kids. Um, wanting their food and something's missing. You're like, I'm oh, too I tired. See. I'm just right. have a piece of toast. So it's like an Atticus Finch. Yeah, it was. It's quite similar, I think, to, <laughs> to civil rights. <laughs> so, yeah, springing to the defence. So it's not, it's not. I mean, because you, you inconvenience yourself to for justice. That's right. Yes, that's just how I live my life. <laughs> and you got your lukewarm nuggets. Now I got new ones, freshies. Yeah, oh, I'm yeah, going to come yes. back and you're going to give me new nuggets. What about, because... Uh, when you pick something up, because I don't get, I try not to get things delivered. Me too. I very rarely. I know. Rarely. Mm. Yeah. Because uh, it's always cold and it takes twice as long. Yeah. yeah. But wh- where do you stand on eating in the car? Oh, sometimes you have to because you don't want anyone to know. Yeah. Oh, you hide it. Shame, no, no. Eh? As in, well, it depends. Yeah. So, sorry, this is not something I do often. No, it's Recently fine. Recently we went to a play, the three mm-hmm. of us. Oh, mm-hmm. yes. And it finished late and it was it was a strange time. I hadn't eaten. Mm. And I was like, I'm going to get drive through. Never do it. Mm. Um, and then ate it all before I got home because I was embarrassed. But then, of course, told Will I got drive through, And he's like, what? Why didn't you get me anything? And I was like, because it's 9 o'clock. I assumed you're already here. Yeah. He's like, yeah, but I would have happily had a second dinner if I'd known. Yeah. Absolutely. you got to keep that stuff secret. Yeah. I mean, I I'd had a shame burger in the car uh, <laughs> pretty recently and then the other day looked 
the passenger seat and there was like a dried cold chip like, reminding me of my debauchery. Like, the remnant. Like, yeah, yeah, remnant of my private disgrace. Did you uh, eat it? No, I didn't. No, I did not eat it. He took it home, put it in the oven. And- <laughs> no food waste. Triple R. Antoinette Latouf is an award-winning journalist who has worked across newsrooms including the ABC, SBS and Network 10 and in 2017 co-founded Media Diversity Australia, a not-for-profit working towards increasing cultural and linguistic diversity in the media. In 2021, Antoinette received a Women's Agenda Leadership Award and has been named among the Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence. Now, a new book, How to Lose Friends and Influence White People, is out and to, to tell us about it, the Diversity Advocate joins us now. Antoinette, welcome to Breakfasters. Hi, thanks for having me, guys. It's our pleasure. Uh, now, you, you've been a, a journalist for a long time. You've accumulated a lot of colleagues, all your experience, uh, 96 first cousins. Uh, <laughs> that's an impressive catalogue of friends to lose. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad that you, you mentioned um, all of my cousins. You've certainly done your research. That is impressive. Um, yeah, and, and that's the interesting thing about my book, which is like an anti-racism manual for anybody, really. It can be somebody trying to have awkward conversations with their nan to somebody in the workplace trying to manage better representation. And within that, I talk about some of the really uncomfortable conversations I've had with my own cousin. So I have an Arab background. So we're neither, we're neither black nor white, um, but there's certainly racism that we both experience and we perpetuate. And when I've tried to challenge that, well, let's just say I, ha- I don't have 96 Facebook friends. <laughs> <laughs> But they're not, yeah, Facebook, you've met, you mentioned the seeing you, the way your cousins and, and relatives post online. How different is, are those kinds of conversations, do you think, to the ones you would have face-to-face? Surprisingly, they're quite similar because we often find that people are their worst selves online, but um, we're pretty, and I think maybe it's just a cultural thing, um, quite direct and and say how we feel. We love deeply, we, we mourn deeply, we cry, you know, we... We show all of those emotions quite passionately. So I would say at our, our family catch-up, so they're really quite similar, their online persona to their, their offline persona. So, yeah, I've certainly had to navigate some, some tricky terrain there. You speak about in your book, uh, one of the things that I found quite interesting, uh, I, I'm mixed race and my mother was a Pacific Islander, and you speak about people that come from minority groups being racist towards other minority groups. Um, mm. and, and I guess siding towards the whiteness or, you know, trying to get out of the firing line. Um, I I was quite shocked when I heard my mother had said a a couple of off-the-cuff things that I was like, you're experiencing this. How can you now say these things? Um, How how did you find that when you said family have have reacted that way or or just people from minority groups that are slightly racist? Yeah, look, I think that's always probably been the case. But for me, it was really obvious around Black Lives Matter. Here was this really global movement highlighting an issue that we know on our shores has been, you know, hugely problematic with Indigenous deaths in custody for 200 years. Um, And it reinvigorated that conversation. And then when I saw other people of colour other community groups that have been absolutely the centre of moral panic and racialized sort of reporting and pushback from Australian community, when I saw them posting things like All Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter and kind of piling on to this anti-blackness, I just thought, oh, my God, like, how do you 
how do you have such a short memory span? So I thought it was a short memory span. And then upon digging a little bit deeper, although there's so little research in this area, it's a bit of a survival mechanism that if you're not looking at us, um, we're happy for you to pile on somebody else. Yeah. And it's almost uh, it's almost a way of, and it should never be the case, that if you can't beat them and if you can't beat structural racism, then you join it. Um, and that's what I, and that's one of the things I, I call out and I, I challenge in my book and I look at the very small amount of research in Australia. Um, but that shines a light on my own community, your Middle Eastern community, which has been the subject of a lot of racism and a lot of moral panic, especially in the war on terror and the Cronulla riots. And then going, hey, guys, you hated it when it was being done to us. How How is it okay for you to then use that same kind of language and oppression towards black people. When this hypocrisy is pointed out to people who are perpetuating it, does it, does it sink in? Look, I hope so. Um, it's interestingly, there have been um, other people of colour or from mixed race families who have said, oh, finally, somebody's talking about this. This has been such a problem in my community or I have noticed this too. But it's almost as though we don't want to take away, some people don't want to take away the focus from the, the really problematic and structural racism, which is very kind of white supremacist in its, um, by its very nature. So, um, and, and I guess uh, sometimes there is a, a tendency to, to not shine too much of a light on it because then it's an opportunity to go, oh, well, see, look at all you brown people just fighting amongst yourselves mm. rather than going, okay, what really causes this? And what causes this is if there's this, um, the fact that all of our pillars in Australia, our power structures, be they media, government, business, arts are overwhelmingly white. So the, the real problem is not kind of lashing out on one another as, as people of colour, but uniting and going, okay, we don't, infighting isn't going to solve this. What we need to do is work towards, uh, you know, real inclusion and real representation in, in our multicultural country. Uh, you invoke the notion of racial battle fatigue. Is How do you navigate uh, needing or wanting to do the work and also just stepping away and pursuing your own path and career uh, or, you know, subdividing your time. Yeah, it's really important because I guess why this book has tips and tools and is a manual for anyone, whether you want to be a white ally or you're a person of colour trying to navigate change or or, or an Indigenous or black person who's dealing with a lot of racial trauma from your life and still wants to be an agent for change, uh, I talk about the ways to self-care, talk about, I talk about racial battle fatigue and I talk about the importance of stepping aside if and when you need to. The, the truth is I'm a journalist. That's my craft. I tell stories. Um, I wasn't, I didn't plan to be an anti-racism advocate. Um, I didn't plan to take on all of this extra work, which gets me resistance from friends and colleagues, which gets me trolled, which I at least lost two jobs because of it. Um, but sometimes when an injustice is so great, it's hard to be part of a system. And I was part of the media, which is a huge part of the problem because it's so it's so overwhelmingly white and, and some media outlets, arguably their business model is racism. But I have had to step aside sometimes. I've had to take care of my mental health. I still see a therapist thanks to the mental health care plan. Um, and I don't always get it right. Sometimes I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm really angry sometimes um, and I hate to go, oh, I'm emotional, but sometimes I really am. Mm. Um, and so it's, it's just about having your support network but also having people around you who can go, oh, you know what, I think you need to, I think you need to take a breather or I, or I don't think you're okay or I think you're 
you've missed the mark on this because we're not always going to get it right. Mm. Uh, there are so many perspectives in the book. You, you know, everyone from Aristotle to, of course, uh, Carnegie, the author of the book that the the title parodies. Have you, in starting the book, uh, changed your own philosophy in any way, or did did you yes. learn from your own work? Yeah, I actually did. The more I I looked into the psychology of influence and change. Um, the more I realised that some of those biffos I was having with my cousins online were never going to change their mind. The language I was using, the approach, it was just... And also that they were really fixed. A couple of them were really fixed in their opposition. I'm talking Trump won the election, 5G is being injected into our arm-type thinkers. (laughs) Um, They were never, ever going to be open to the arguments I were making. Um, And so I I look at change and influence in a scale of one to fives, with one being the people who absolutely agree with you and nod at everything you say, and five being those strong opposed, those we need Trump, insurrection would have saved us all. Um, And realising that we need to focus on the people who are two, threes and fours, those people in the middle, they're a bit curious, a little bit sceptical, bored, whatever. And in my my research, I realised that some of my advocacy methods, whether they were, you know, within the media organisation and broader society, or within my own family and friends, some were futile because I was barking up the, the tree of the fives, the five camp, and they were never going to do anything. Um, they were never going to have their minds changed. So that was something that I, I really learned. I, I now choose my energy and choose my audience a lot more wisely and it's something that I um, I also plan out and map out in, in the book for, for readers. Uh, well, we're crashing up against the news so we're gonna have to leave it unfortunately but how to lose friends and influence white people is the name of the new book i just wanted to uh, ask finally um you know there's a trope i guess that this is a, a like a racket or especially in the states you know like there's some grift but it the work that you do it's it's not making you rich oh my god it's hilarious. People, I'm like, it's actually making me unpopular enough. Yes, <laughs> that I don't know anybody who thinks that writing a book, unless you're J.K.R. Rowling, like writing a book is not a lucrative deal. So, I mean, that's bollocks. And if I was, yeah, if I was rich, I'd probably be doing something else. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, How to Lose Friends and Influence White People by award-winning journalist, changemaker and diversity advocate Antoinette Latouf is out now via Vintage Books. Thank you so very much for chatting with us this morning. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Ah, that's right, triple R. I've had a couple of nightmares lately and prior to my recent experiences, I haven't had nightmares for years. I'm Mm. thinking like maybe when I was a, I mean, probably after I was a kid, but I know generally as a kid you you can have a lot of nightmares. Um, But when, so I was having a nightmare recently and I was obviously in my dream, I was screaming and trying to get away um but nothing was coming out you couldn't move all that kind of stuff that happens in nightmares um but I was making noises on the outside so Abby would wonderful just put a hand on my chest and just wakes me gently until I wake up which is lovely which was the opposite of what I did when she was having a nightmare (laughs) which I didn't realize at the time I I just heard her making noises this a while ago and I was like oh she's having a nightmare so (laughs) I have gone to wake her up by holding both her shoulders and having my head over her face, like going, hey, wake up, hey, wake up, wake up. So she has woken up from a nightmare and then sees a silhouette of someone in her face. Holding her down. Holding her down. (laughs) And then she had it, so she, yeah, had a bit of a panic attack and I had to tell her that it was me and turn the light on. 
Um, but yeah, now I do it smooth. Um, but yeah, no, she's a lot better at it. So now I, I'm better. I'll just put my hand on her chest and gently wake her. Um, but the, the other day I was having, because, you know, I need to have a nap uh, during mm-hmm. the day. And Abby was at work and so I was napping and I had another nightmare. And I woke up to Winnie licking my face. <laughs> so adorable. Hey, she obviously saw that something was happening and she come and lick my face. Also gross because mm-hmm. she got right into my nose. Right. <laughs> I was just like, oh, Jesus. Anyway, I was very grateful. I mean, good on her for getting up because she was napping as well. We we napped together oh, in the afternoon. Nice. So is that, sorry, does that mean like the tongue curls up like a taco yes. to slide into the nostril? It was That was what got me. Like I felt a little lick, but it was kind of still in my dream. I was like, whoa, jeez, I'm getting attacked now. I'm getting licked. What is happening? And then bang. <laughs> It's, a, it's amazing how quickly I woke up Yeah, <laughs> when she got in my nose. Anyway, um, she uh, now I'm just wiping my nose. Anyway, um, but it, it was great. Like, she actually helped me get out of my dream, which I think is so adorable. It's very, yeah, what a it's, clever dog. Isn't it? Mm. Yeah. What do you think you were doing in, well, I mean, from the from, outside? From what Abby has said, and I, you can kind of feel it as well. I'm just, like, I guess grunting, making noises oh, and, yeah. and moving a little bit. Like, I'm obviously uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, like, so, uh, uh, <laughs> like shimmying? <laughs> that sounds like a monster. Sounds um, like a koala. Oh, yeah, <laughs> or yeah. Or a possum. Or a possum. Does, yeah. Um, no, I don't know. I think it's like a groaning. I, I'm not sure that I, I have no idea. It's just a noise that oh, sounds no. like a Well, there's different song. groans. Mm. I think <laughs> oh, yeah, that would be it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is similar, more similar to Mon. Yeah. I, I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, but you know the other day, I'm not sure if you guys, because I do love a horror movie, um, mm. if you guys have seen the series, but The House of Haunting, oh, what is it? The Haunting of Hill House. It was mm-hmm. a series that went for um, only one series. <laughs> Mustn't have been very good, but I loved it. Terrifying, absolutely terrifying. But it was talk. It, one of the main characters had sleep paralysis, <gasps> um, which is just the worst. And so she would, like, she couldn't move, but she would see... Um, like a, a ghost figure dying like in front of her mm. and she couldn't, it was horrible. Anyway, the other day when I had the nightmare, Abby woke me up and I woke up and I could, it felt like there was, and normally I'll wake up from a nightmare and then it's done. You're awake and you're gone. But I woke up and it felt like I, I opened my eyes and there was a silhouette of someone ho- hovering over the top of the bed. So I have kicked <gasps> the blanket and Abby's, and she had to kind of get me again and then I was like, okay. But I haven't had that before. Normally you, you wake up. Like half in the dream and half. Abby. Well, I was, but I was also awake because, uh, like, Abby was there yeah. as well. So, it so was Abby just... wasn't the ghost or whatever. No, I didn't Abby was in between you. <laughs> no, she was just to my left. The ghost was hovering over the top of me. Yeah. Anyway, I kicked it and then put my head under the blanket. God, I felt like a baby. Uh, but then it was gone. So anyway, I'm all good now. Um, but it made me think because I haven't had nightmares since I was a kid. Mm. But some of the nightmares that you have when you're a kid, I mean, what are some of the worst ones? I think going to school and just being naked. Oh, the na- I never had just the not- naked one. Oh, well, in your underwear or in a bathing yeah. suit. And just like, how the hell did I walk out the door like this? What were <laughs> mum and dad doing to allow me to walk out They're the door? They're at home naked as well. <laughs> this is how we live. <laughs> yeah. yeah terrifying. I, I mean, there's still the overhang of... I mean, you know how people say, oh, I woke up because I thought I had an exam, but I graduated high school 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I still wake up in a fresh panic. 
Oh, good. Most mornings? Yeah, but not about high, but just about everyday life. Yeah. I don't know if it's nightmares or something else. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to see someone. Uh, but, yeah, do you think that this haunting, this whatever show that you're describing informed, do, do you think you would have had that hallucination were it not for the show? Uh, probably not. But I haven't seen the show in years. Yeah. Maybe I saw an advertisement for it or something and I yeah. was thinking about it. I mean, I was watching a show called The Responder with Martin Freeman uh, it's on SBS On Demand. Anyway, I was, it was just before bed and uh, there was a very stressful scene and I just turned it off. I'm like, I don't need yeah, this. Yeah, not, I can't handle it. Yeah, yeah, I have to like, protect myself from what, anxiety or nightmares or, mm. yeah. But, you know, that, that's the thing. Like, if you watch a haunted show, does it bleed in Well, reliably? You know, or? I would happily go to sleep straight after a haunted show, but Abby's like, absolutely not. We are going to watch a comedy yeah. for at least 20 minutes yeah. because she wouldn't be able to sleep otherwise. I tried to punish Gabriel by using the word dark. Like, do you want to be in the dark? <laughs> oh, like, do that again and I'll put you... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and now the light has to be on. So I'm like, a bad parenting. <laughs> but... <laughs> So, like, there's this, like, mushroom light. Like, you know, oh, you yeah, need like to sleep the light, light on. Yeah, a little yeah. night light because Daddy petrified him of the, <laughs> the dark. Good. Yeah, good. That might that might never go away, that, that fear. I, one time I, Will and I were looking after – we were staying in our parents' house. We were, like, house-sitting for them. Um, so, unfamiliar, that can that can make you have a disturbed yeah. sleep. Oh, yeah. Um, and I went out to a – I don't know if it – I went out to a dinner and I think it was with a group of friends. I was like, don't worry, it's not going to be late. And for whatever reason, it was really late. Ended up being a big night. And so I got home late, in the, late, like three in the morning and he was asleep. Um, and so I kind of crept up <laughs> and into, the, you know, not to wake him up. And he knew where I'd been and everything like that. And then I got to the door of the bedroom and he just like sat bolt upright oh. and went, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> What? Like three, Shrinks. three sharp shrinks sitting, and sitting straight up in bed. <laughs> and I was like, it's me, it's me. <laughs> but then, of course, I found it so funny. And then I had to sit down. And then <laughs> like I had to kind of like shake his, like hold his shoulders. And then he was like, oh, oh I don't know. So disorientated. <laughs> Insane. So that's a real noise, like the Yelp tree. Yeah, I've never heard him make it before or after. <laughs> my, oh, um, my God. It's, my brother ran out of petrol years ago and he called me at 2 a.m. in the morning to come and it was pouring with, with rain and he was on the highway and so I came with a jerry can and a trench coat because it was raining and he was asleep in the car. I you <laughs> so I have, I'm going, Russ, Russ, and I'm tapping on the window and he wasn't waking up. So I started banging on the window. So he has woken up to this trench coat of someone banging on the window and he has done a will and he's like, ah! <laughs> I have to take my hood off. I'm like, it's me. Bobby's roadside assist. How I scare the shit Triple R. The incomparable Dr. Jen's here to drag some weird science into our dumb skulls. Morning, Dr. Jen. <laughs> Good morning. I thought we should talk about lying this morning. No, no coincidence at all that we happen to be in an election week that I thought lying would be a good topic. Didn't occur to me. Interesting. Um, 
I have questions, but I want you to start. Okay, well, I, I think we can all start with the basic premise that everybody lies. Anybody who tells you they don't lie, they're lying in that instant. So lying is super common. It's obviously not just the domain of politicians. We all lie and we start lying as very young children. And studies have suggested we lie from anything from, you know, once or twice a day to dozens and dozen times a day. And, of course, you know, mostly it's white lies. Oh, it's so nice to see you. Oh, I've got a dash. I've got an appointment, you know. <laughs> yes, you look gorgeous in that dress. <laughs> whatever, whatever the. I'm never going to believe a compliment from no, you again. I've got to stay home. I'm isolating. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yes. The COVID has provided a whole new playground for lies, yeah. hasn't it? But anyway, what I want to talk about today, though, is this idea of detecting lies, because obviously, you know, we we all would uh, be have advantages if we could detect when somebody was lying to us, given that people are lying all the time. But we've known for a long time that it's actually quite hard to detect lies. So compulsive liars effectively train their brains not to feel at all guilty about lying. So if you don't feel guilty about lying, then it's not at all difficult to keep lying. And uh, essentially, you know, once you desensitize your brain to lying, you don't show any signs of stress. And so all of the kind of standard things that people look for and, and what lie detectors are looking for, you can't detect it because if you if you have no concerns about lying and equally you don't have any, you know, fear that somebody is going to pick you up as lying, you're, you know, you're simply not stressed about it. So where does that leave us, right? How do, how do we try and detect somebody who's lying? Any any thoughts? So, so even people who've trained themselves to lie, like their heart rate won't change, those kinds of things or... You know, the whole no, looking not. to the right or looking down or that they, they can combat that? Yeah, I think people can combat it because if they're not if they're not kind of clued into the fact that they're lying or they don't feel guilty about lying mm. or they're not worried about lying or they're not worried about their lie being detected, most of those kind of physiological things just, just don't happen. And research shows that we, we're really bad at detecting lies. On average, we can detect lying about 52% of the time. Mm. So that means you might as well flip a coin. And there's really famous studies showing that even highly trained people in, in police force and FBI generally aren't that much better at detecting lies than, than and your average person yeah. and it's because we kind of tuned into the wrong you know the wrong features there was a big worldwide study that showed that more than 70 percent of people thought that avoiding eye contact was the strongest sign of lying and that was debunked mm. def decades ago people mm. if anything people make more eye contact when they're lying because they're trying to overcome ah. the feeling that people you know are worried that they're not going to make someone tell contact. larry david that's his whole shtick what about the uh, <laughs> uh what about the voice you know i'm good you know <laughs> oh yeah yeah, the rising yeah. inflection. Well, Daniel, you've just made it easy for all of us to work out when you're lying, oh, haven't you? <laughs> what about lie detector tests? Are they efficacious at all or is that all bogus? Oh, look, I think that's there's, there's so much research out there and some people will argue that in very particular circumstances they can still detect lying. But I think generally we know that if... I mean, imagine if a person doesn't even think that they're lying. They've managed to convince themselves that what they're telling is the truth. How would they show any physiological signs that, that they're lying when they don't actually think they are? I think it's a really interesting area of research and there's heaps and heaps of research out there. But there's just a new paper that just came out that I found really interesting that I thought would be useful for us all to know about. So... 
What we do know is that it generally isn't eye contact, it generally isn't heart rate or, or voice inflection or anything else. What we do know is that somebody who is concocting a lie has to think quite hard about it because you're thinking, oh, hang on, I have to make sure this makes sense to the person, I have to make sure it's not going to contradict something they already know. But if somebody is given the time and the opportunity to really think carefully about a lie, it turns out that the truth and lies end up sounding equally plausible and they're really hard to, to tell apart. So this new research wanted to take advantage of the fact that we know people who are concocting lies have to think about it really hard. So they got 164 people involved in an experiment and first they were given a 20 question questionnaire with a whole lot of provocative controversial statements and they were asked to say whether they supported the statement or they were against the statement and how strongly they felt about it. So things like arranged marriages should be allowed, smoking bans in public places is a good thing, every woman should have access to an abortion, government should allow the use of cannabis for personal use, so things that are likely to, you know, people are likely to have an opinion about. And then these people were randomly allocated to two groups, either a lying group or a truth-telling group, and they were told that they would have an interview about the three topics that they felt most strongly about, the ones that they cared about the most. And so if you were a truth teller, you were instructed that you should give your true opinions. But if you were a liar, then you were told you had to make up a whole lot of lies during the interview. And they had as long as they wanted to prepare for the interview, so plenty of time for, to prepare. But they were told that it was really important that they convinced the person that was interviewing them. So, I mean, how hard would that be, right? Mon, how would you feel about having to really convincingly argue against something that you strongly believe in. Yeah, I think a lot of those questions were um, of a moral sort of basis and I find that would be really hard to lie about. Um, yeah. And then you get yourself tied up in knots. But I wonder if you're someone who enjoys or Drama. is good at lying, Yeah. do you kind of see it as a bit of a game or like a bit of role-playing? Like, and oh, this is like... Scene. Hey? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like if, you know, <laughs> oh, I can just get into character, maybe that's the only way you could do it. Well, it strikes me that anyone who'd done debating at high school mm. would be pretty good at this, right? Because that's kind of what it is. Yeah. But but the bit of the experiment I haven't told you yet is the most important bit, and that is that of the liars, half of them were told that they actually had an additional task that they had to concentrate on, and they were told it was really important and there would be consequences if they failed on this additional task. And the additional task was that they had to memorise a seven-digit number and they had to be able to repeat that to the person interviewing them and it turns out that as long as that person believed that it was really important that they uh, memorized this seven digit number they were much less convincing when they were lying their stories were much less plausible than the people telling the truth so the researchers looked at things like how many reasons the person gave for their opinion how direct they were whether they were repetitive whether they just kind of said the same thing in different words how personal their comments were and the extra brain power that the liars needed to concentrate on this secondary task because they were basically being forced to multitask, which we know people are really bad at. Um, that extra cognitive effort required to memorise the seven-digit numbers made it really hard for them to concoct a believable lie. So mm. it turns out the research showed that as long as you believe the secondary task is important, um, people can be, it can be, you can really undermine their ability to concoct lies because they just have to think about this other thing at the same time. Okay. And what application, I'm trying to imagine an application in real, in life, real yeah. life. So if you're distracted or if your focus 
is elsewhere. Exactly. If you are distracted, if you feel like someone is lying to you, distract them with something that you know will grab their attention. And the research has suggested, you know, in a kind of police setting when you're interviewing someone, if if there's nothing you can convince them is equally important to distract Mm. them, you could make them do something that they have to concentrate on, like making them drive a car simulator. Imagine that. Step into this interview room. (laughs) There's a car simulator. You sit in there, chappie, while we interview you about this supposed crime. (laughs) Because it's funny that in court, like people obviously would lie all the time in court, right, when they're on the witness stand or whatever, and even though they take an oath. Um, Is that because people get and people get away with it? Maybe they should give them like a crossword to solve at the same time or something because they're only concentrating one thing. Yeah, I think that's what the researchers are suggesting, that we have to come up with plausible, important ways to distract people and give them an additional task that they are invested in doing well on. And that will mean that they just don't have the brain reserves to be able to concoct a lie and keep building their lies. So I guess, I mean, I don't know what this means for us and politicians this week, but it's worth thinking about, hey. Mm. Here's a Rubik's Cube and now yeah. we'll give us your costings. <laughs> yeah, right. <gasps> Let's try it. <laughs> you know, Throw a cube out from the audience. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing, Dr. Janet. Well, I'd say it was a pleasure, but you never believe me yeah. this week. <laughs> I'm not going to ever believe you ever again, Daniel, unless you're doing Sudoku at the same time. <laughs> Precisely. We'll catch you then. Triple R. Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasts, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or the Triple R website. <laughs>